here you are holding on to bitterness and anger and hatred this morning, wondering why God's not blessing your life. Because you're not willing to follow him with unquestioning obedience in your life. What is a mighty man of God? In the book of 2 Samuel, God took special care to name several of them for us. Why were these peoples important enough to God that he would have their names and accomplishments listed for us in his holy word? And of maybe even greater importance, where are the mighty men and women of God today? What makes a man or woman great in the eyes of God? Listen in to find out the answers to these questions in this message from Pastor Joplin Emerson, God's Mighty Men. These men are called David's Mighty Men, but obviously they were called that at God's discretion. For the Word is God's Word, not David's, not anyone else's. So God looked at this group of men and said, these are mighty men. What is a mighty man of God? God took special care for us to name these men. He even named some of their accomplishments for us to let us know he knew what they had done. What happens that makes a man or a woman catch the eye of God and the heart of God so that God says of this man or woman, that is a mighty man or woman of God. What are the characteristics that make up that group of people? Who were these mighty men of God? And it might be better asked, where are the mighty men and women of God today? Who are the mighty men and women of God? And, and I want to kind of finish with the, the angle of how do we become a mighty man or woman of God? If I want God to see me the way that he saw these people here, how do I do that? How do I become that? I want to, with God's help, answer that question today. What I want us to do is, is really from our text, I'm, I'm going to pull three things from our text that I think the text clearly indicates, and, I, and I'm going to call them characteristics of mighty men and women of God. The first thing I want you to note about mighty men of God is that these warriors of God are often unknown to the masses. Isn't it interesting? I just read a list of names, 37 of them, and even if you are like a Bible scholar in this place, you probably don't know about 30, 32 of those names. And that's not a slight. I've read the names over and over and over again. I've read this passage several times this week in preparation I can't repeat to you a bunch of the names that I just read. And I've studied them, and I just read them at the 9 o'clock service. They're not actually there for us to memorize. But the first thing I want you to note about great men and women of God is they are often unknown by the masses. In a word, they are selfless. These people's name is written in the holiest book of all time, and I can guarantee you most of them could have cared less. They weren't doing what they did to get their name on some page. They didn't live their life to have their name up in the lights. And I would call it an absolute prerequisite 
of ever being really used of God in a great way, of being a mighty man of God, a mighty woman of God that catches the eye of God, you have got to be a selfless person. They lived their life for a purpose bigger than their own. They fought for something bigger than their own lives. They lived for a kingdom other than their own and ultimately were willing to die for a kingdom other than their own. These men were selfless. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to know this morning is our God's kingdom, it works differently than all other kingdoms. God has a way at times of making things really plain for us. I appreciate it when he does. But when he does take the time to make some stuff really plain, it's obvious he wants no mistaking. You know one of the things God says about his kingdom is that he despises and brings down the proud, but he elevates the humble. He says, that's the way my kingdom works. You want to be great? You're going to have to let me be the one that elevates you to greatness. You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to be selfless. You're going to have to do what you do for a purpose greater than your name, greater than your kingdom, greater than your life. You've got to be willing to selflessly give all that you are to me and live for me. These men were selfless men. They were unknown by the masses. But I want you to note, secondly, these kind of warriors are noticed by God. We might not know their names, but God wants us to to see something here. He does. He knows who they are. And he even lists some of their accomplishments for us. Obviously, this wasn't all their accomplishments, but he lists some of them for us to let us know. I not only know their name, I know what they do. My eye is on them. I've seen how they've lived for me. I've seen what they've done for me. I know their name. Every name. I'm going to take time to name them each one by one. He cared to have them listed in the holy pages of Scripture. How powerful is that? Don't you think that these men matter to God? You know, when I make a statement like that, and I, that's, that's the, the, the way it's actually written in my notes. Don't you think these men matter to God? In this pampered age that we live in, a statement like that can be offensive. Right? Because we want to say everybody matters to God. Well, to a degree, yes. The Bible tells us that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe should be saved. They wouldn't have to perish. Yeah, God loves everybody. God is all-knowing, so he knows everybody's name. But that does not mean that God doesn't take special notice of the warriors of God, the great men and women of God who go above and beyond to honor God with their life, to search God with all of their heart and to live for him and to fight for him and to die for him. If necessary, God takes special note of these people. They matter to God. And then I wrote this simple truth I want God to know my name. I mean beyond the fact that he knows everybody's name. I want when God thinks of 
Who are the people that are willing to stand on the line for me, go to bat for me, lay down their life for me? When he starts thinking of those names, I want God to think of my name. I want God to know my name. Several years ago, I was walking the streets of Derby and I was praying. And it just came out of me. I said, God, I want to be the single top human being of Derby, Kansas that's on the devil's number one hit list. I want to be so destructive to his kingdom. I want to rescue so many that there is not a single person in this community that he wants to destroy more than me. And you know, that really came out of a recent study during that time when the seven sons of Scavia were trying to cast out demons. You'll find this in the book of Acts. And they were doing it in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And if you know the story, the demons actually attack these Jewish exorcists, but they speak back. And here's what they said. They said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And that, that passage gripped my heart. I'm like, I, I, I do want to be known, but I don't just want to be known. I want to be the number one in this community, in the, in the place that God has planted my life, the place where my feet walk. I want to be that guy. But this week, as I was studying this, I thought to myself, I missed the mark just a little. I don't care so much if Satan knows my name as a great warrior in the kingdom. I want God to know my name as a great warrior in his kingdom. I don't care so much what Satan thinks about how successful I am at ministry. I want God to think I'm successful at ministry. I don't care so much if Satan knows my name. I want God to know my name. I want to live a life that God looks at and says, this one here is a great man of God. This one here is a great warrior for my kingdom. This one here has committed his life all the way to the end for me. The encouraging thing for these warriors, while it's true their name might not be in lights, God knows their name. Their name might not be on the billboards. Billions of people across America are applauding and saying these guys are great. But God says, I know who they are. Brothers and sisters, God is looking for more men and women of God like this. Look what Ezekiel 22.30 says. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Very important principle we learn here, folks. God is sovereign. God's going to do his will. But God teaches us some things about his character here. When God has a goal to accomplish, he doesn't just choose to overthwart the will of man and say, well, I need to get something done. So regardless of the fact there's not anybody searching me and there's not anybody that's living right with me, I'm just going to use them anyways. That's not what God does. God says, I searched for a man who would stand in the gap. This is a powerful, powerful verse. I'm actually going to be teaching on it tonight in life groups. 
And so I'm not going to expand on it a lot right now, but I want you to notice in it, God is ultimately saying, hey, I I was looking for somebody to hold back my wrath. I was just looking for one. I was looking for a man of God who could stand in the gap, and I could not find one. I asked the question if God went searching for a man, searching for a woman who would stand in the gap before him in your family, in your community, in your home, in your workplace, would he find you there? Because I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God is searching for these great men and women of God. Does God know your name this morning in this capacity? So I want to ask the question, why? Why did God select these men? Or or maybe how? How does God see and select great men and women of God? And a simple answer, the third characteristic is that they've committed their life to the kingdom. They have committed their life to the kingdom. But what I want to do this morning is I want to break down that statement. Because it's a statement we can kind of just let go in one ear and out the other. What does it mean that they committed their life to the kingdom? First of all, these men had already laid down their life. They were ready to go and die if necessary, immediately at the king's command. From a New Testament perspective, it might be said of these men that they had taken up their cross. That's what Jesus said. You want to follow me? Anybody could come. Just take up your cross. They were crucified with Christ. These were those of whom it can be said they loved not their own lives even unto death. They were dead to their own lives, dead to their own dreams, dead to their own passions, dead to their own kingdom. They choose to live to God and God alone. They choose to live for his kingdom and his glory alone. These are the men that we find, the type of men we find and women. Mentioned in Revelation 12 and verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Here it is again, brothers and sisters, complete selflessness. It is the true, complete, total giving of ourselves to God. I'm going to tell you, you will never truly be a great man or woman of God with power with God if you have not truly and completely committed your life to Him and His kingdom. We see that they followed orders with unquestioning obedience. Those of you that were here a few weeks back, you might remember Pastor Tony preached a message on Uriah the Hittite. And if you remember the story, the way that Uriah died was wrong on every possible count. It just was wrong. But Uriah was a picture of somebody with unquestioning obedience. That's what these men were. It it didn't matter if it didn't make sense. We do not question the king. Thank God that our king is sinless. 
And our king will never do to us what David did to Uriah. But what I'm telling you this morning is, you're going to be a great man or woman of God. You have got to serve him with unquestioning obedience. Let me say it this way. It doesn't matter if you understand why God says no or not. If God says no, the answer is no. Unquestioning obedience. It doesn't matter what God says you have to do. If God says you have to do it, you have to do it. Unquestioning obedience. It matters that we obey God. In an era of hyper-grace where we justify sinful behavior, where we wrongly over-apply statements like, well, I'm not perfect, I'm not sinless, I've got sin, you've got sin. Okay, great, thanks for your honesty. But somehow we leave that at, we shouldn't be actively repenting of it. That's not biblical. If you know you've got sin, you need to be broken over it, seeking the face of God and repenting over it. You can't remain in it and say, well, you've got sin, I've got sin. You will never be anointed by God. You will never be blessed by God. You will never have power with God. You'll never see God really bless your life like that. God won't bless sin in the camp. And these men, it's one of the, the, the things that matters. These men were absolutely willing to follow with unquestioning obedience. You might not understand why, and God might not tell you why. But you better obey. And if God has said, you've got to do it. It might not make sense. It might not make sense to you. You know, why God says to do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. It doesn't matter if that makes sense to you or not. God said do it. Stop your, stop, stop your excuse making. God said to forgive your enemies to the same degree that God's forgiven you. It'd be impossible because your enemies have never done you wrong as bad as you've done wrong. But I think you get the point. That's the point God was trying to make. But here you are holding on to bitterness and anger and hatred this morning. Wondering why God's not blessing your life. Because you're not willing to follow him with unquestioning obedience in your life. I'm telling you that's what makes these type of warriors different. I'm telling you this is what makes these type of people live on a different plane. Absolute unquestioning obedience. Now listen, I could go through list after list after list this morning. I think you get the point. These men stood and fought when other men ran. A couple times in the passage, it tells us stories of when all of Israel, they wouldn't fight or they fled. They either wouldn't go to the battle or they fled from the battle. And we see these individuals, they just stood in and said, I'd rather die than run. Listen, if you're going to be a great man of God, you're going to be a great woman of God, you're going to have to learn to stand when others won't. If your Christian life if your Christian stance is based upon the atmosphere and general consensus of other believers, you will run most of the time because others run most of the time. It's not how we do this. It's not like, all right, brothers, how far are we going to go today? I mean, what are we willing to stand for today? 
You know, this is really important for all of us, but I'm going to tell you younger believers, college, high school, middle school, you want to be a great man or woman of God right where you're at? You cannot gauge how far you're willing to go for God and how much you're willing to stand for him based upon the atmosphere of your peers. That's what made these people different. They stood and they fought when everybody else ran. Notice they were focused. They were focused on who they were fighting for. They were fighting for a bigger cause. They were fighting ultimately for God Almighty and for his kingdom. They knew what they were fighting for. And very importantly, they knew who they were fighting against. Guys, this is really important. You want to be successful in your aim, we have to know who we're fighting against. I'm going to tell you straight out, it's not flesh and blood. It's not people. It's not Gentiles or heathens or atheists or whatever you want to call them. It's not people of other religions. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. That's what the Bible teaches us. And I've watched the church. We've been so confused and we're turned around and we're, so many people are frustrated and it's almost like just out of a sense of frustration, they're venting, but they're, they're not, their, their aim is wrong. They're fighting people. They're trying to hurt people. Jesus died for people. Our job is to rescue people. Our job is to save them from the clutches of hell. It's not people that we fight against. It's not political parties that we fight against. I don't care how much you hate somebody from a political party. Jesus shed his blood and let it run drop and run dry there on Calvary's cross so that that person might be redeemed. That's how much he loved them. Don't mean they're saved and don't mean they're going to heaven. They've got to repent. But Jesus paid the cost so that they could be saved. It'll change the way you deal with people when you see people that way. We've got to be focused. The final thing I want to share this morning about why these men, what makes them great men and women of God, we cannot miss the fact that they were anointed by God. So they were anointed. That's what made them so great. I'm going to answer the question of like, how were they anointed? How do we be anointed? That's an important question. But first, let me establish the fact. These women were anointed. They didn't just like somehow have, you know, born. They, they weren't like all eight foot two, 400 pound monsters that could just slay anybody they wanted. Samson's not mentioned in this text and he's not one of these great mighty men of God. But you remember the story of Samson? You know, Samson's a pretty classic child story because he was so powerful and so strong. But you know the thing that everybody said about Samson? It's an important point. You can't miss it in the scriptures. Where does he get his strength? They didn't look at the guy and be like, man, that dude's huge. You know, he's a monster. They're like, where did he get that strength? 
He falls in love with Delilah and the enemy eventually gets in her ear and is like, you've got to find the secret. There's a secret. There's something else that's happening. It ain't his muscles. It's not that he's eight foot two and 400 pounds of bulking muscle. There's something happening here. See, he was anointed. It was supernatural strength. You know, these, these men that slayed 800, one that slayed 300, you got to remember there's a lot of details the Bible doesn't tell us, right? It leaves some stuff out. It doesn't tell us how. It doesn't tell us how long the battle. But we do have insight into how things, how battles happened historically. And we see insight especially between the way the Philistines expected battle with Israel. You remember the story of David and Goliath? We had two armies. But Goliath came and stood on the hillside. And said, let's just do it one at a time. And I'll just keep on fighting. Send your best man. Send another one. I'll kill him too. Send another one. I'll kill him too. Send another one. I'll kill him too. And uh, until you guys decide you're done and you agree that I'm the champion. And if I'm the champion, then I win on behalf of all of us. We see documented that historically, it wasn't like, you know, 400 men would ambush one guy to take him over. That's just not the way it worked. So how long this 800-man slaughter took? I don't know. How long the 300-man slaughter? It doesn't actually give us all those details. But here's what I can tell you. It was supernatural. If you've ever been in a fight, if you've ever been in any combat sport, you know how difficult it is to, like, really fight for your life? I'm not talking points here. For your life. For, like, four minutes. Feels like a marathon. Imagine 800 men. You know, one of these guys that says that his hands, it's like they were just gripped to the sword. They were, they were stuck to it. Like he couldn't take them off. Like God just held it there and he just continued to fight. These men were anointed brothers and sisters. And if we're going to be great for God, we've got to be anointed. It's not our own strength. It was the Lord who won the battle. He won it through some brave men that were willing to go to battle when nobody else would. He won it through some brave men who had laid down their life for the kingdom and were utterly obedient no matter what that meant. But nonetheless, it was God who did it. They were men who were obedient to the king's commands. When God said go, they were going to go. Now here's what I want you to, to, to hear this morning. I'm going to stay this, say this statement twice. It's, it's probably the most important statement of this entire message. God can anoint anyone. God doesn't anoint everyone. God can anoint anyone, but he does not anoint everyone. Why not? Why not? The answer is there is a cost for the anointing. A cost that these heroes were willing to pay. I'm telling you something. God does not just randomly hover over the crowd and think I'm going to anoint you and I'm going to anoint you and I'm going to anoint you. No, there's a cost for it. There's a reason for it. There's a cost to pay for the anointing. And most are simply not willing to pay for it. They're not willing to be dedicated. 
The characteristics of these men, which I've already mentioned, are all necessary parts of it. But I want you to, I want to, I want to say, I want to be simple this morning, and I want you to know what the cost of the anointing is. It's probably a statement, it's probably in, in a word, something you would never anticipate. The cost of the anointing is intimacy with God. That is the cost. Now, it sounds like, well, intimacy with God, that's not, that's, that's great. That's what I want. That's not a cost. It does cost you something. Oh, there's a great cost to intimacy with God. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes being committed. When you don't feel like being committed. God said, you will search for me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I pray I'm not being mean-spirited this morning. But we are, we are living in such a generation of pansies who want something for nothing, who don't want to work for anything, who want God and expect God to bless them despite their sin, despite their half-hearted devotion, despite their lack of time in the word, despite their lack of prayer. God, you owe me grace. We wonder why we have no power with God. We wonder why there's no anointing in our lips when we speak, why lives aren't changed when we testify. And in our foolishness, we even blame God for it. Well, God just must not want to move. Nothing can be further from the truth. God said, I searched and I sought for a man who would stand before me and stand in the gap, but I found none. There's a cost for the anointing. And that cost is intimacy. A deep love for God. Many of us will say, I want a deep love for God. I want it. God, give it to me. Does it come that way? You can pray for it all day long. You've got to search for God. You've got to be committed to seeking God. You've got to get in the word of God. Let me ask you something. Do you think every time I, I get off into the wilderness to seek God that all of a sudden the anointing starts flowing and heaven falls? No. Sometimes it's dry. There's times I feel like I don't even want to go because I know God's not going to show up because my heart's not in the right place. It's just meaningless devotion. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It matters that we see God. And you're going to find that what God will do is he'll put you to the test. You can't just be motivated with a flash of emotion and think, wow, I'm going I'm I'm to pray tomorrow for 30 minutes. And then decide you're going to pray for 30 minutes. And if it doesn't work, it didn't work, Pastor Joplin. Now, you've got to be devoted to this thing, brother or sister. You've got to wrestle with God and get to the place that Jacob did where you say, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to let go. God, until you touch me. God, until you help me walk different. God, and help you bless me and have your way in my life. I'm not going to quit searching for you. 
You think every time I open the word of God and get into it, it's just like it flows off and it's deep and spiritual? No. Sometimes it's like reading the newspaper. I'm going to tell you a true story. Three months ago, I was reading the Bible and it was just like a newspaper. You know, one of those days when it's just like, oh, what is this? God, why did you put this in there? Yeah, I was reading this text. And then God started to stir a little bit a few weeks ago, and all of a sudden, Tony's in the same text. I'm like, whoa, wait a second here. Preaches one of the best messages I've ever heard on Uriah the Hittite, and now all of a sudden, I can't get it out of my mind. Who are the rest of these men? All true ministry is born out of intimacy with God. And there was a cost for the anointing. God does not anoint lazy people, half-hearted people, procrastinating people, selfish people. The list goes on. But I want to close today with a plea and a reminder. I've already said it. I'm going to say it again. God can anoint anyone. You know, often we as people, we, we come across the anointing and we recognize how important it is. It makes a difference. It's necessary to be successful for God. You know, you could take an anoint, uh, uh, someone that God's anointed to preach and you can take a transcript of what they said, and then you can put it up next to the transcript of somebody else that preaches basically the same exact theme and content, but it's not anointed. And what you're going to find is, is that when one guy preaches, it changes lives, and when the other guy preaches, nothing happens. Why? It's anointing. It's God doing the supernatural work and actually bringing the enemy to, to, be, to destruction like he did here with these mighty men. It's the anointing. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. God can anoint anyone. It's not like somehow this group of 37 guys were some special class of human beings over here that God just decided, I'm going to anoint those 37. No. They were men who devoted their lives to the kingdom. And when you see people in your life that you can say, this person, I've seen him, they're touched by the anointing of God. There's one thing you can rest assured. They have intimacy with God. They've sought God. They've spent time with God. They search for God. Here's what I want you to get. We need the anointing to be successful at anything we do for God. You need the anointing of God on your lips. You know it. There are people in your life that I will never have the opportunity to minister to. You know that. You know that there are people who Jesus shed his blood for that need a word from God that cuts through the heart that motivates them to move and change and repent. You know that. And you know that you'll probably never be able to bring them here and get them to hear one of our pastors preach. Like when you have the opportunity and God opens that door, you need to be anointed.
And what I want you to see this morning is you can. The devil's a liar. He wants us to, to look at these heroes of the faith as some super category of, of people that we could never be. Hogwash. Look at the disciples that Jesus chose. And then he taught them what devotion looked like. And he taught them what it looked like to press into God. He taught them what it looked like to get away to the quiet place and spend time with God. Jesus did it in his own life. He taught them what it took, the cause, to live in the anointing. They're ordinary people. Ordinary men and women. This morning, and we need men and women of God to rise up. We need people with power in their words. We need people that when they show up on the scene, it changes things because they're anointed by God. 